Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the International Women's Day edition on Diffusion. Relax while Vic and I tell you about the science of ladies. Today we're going to be talking about baby brains debunked, sexy pheromones and transsexual clownfish. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond. A woman's natural scent is more seductive than perfume. Recent research shows that a man's testosterone levels, which are linked to sexual interest, are significantly higher when they smell the shirt of a woman who is ovulating. Ovulating women have been shown to behave differently, with a tendency to be more flirtatious, have sexual fantasies more frequently, and prefer hypermasculine men. However, two separate studies show the power of pheromones. In the first scenario, the scientists gave four women plain white t-shirts. The women wore the shirts over three days when they went to sleep. The researchers then collected the shirts in plastic bags, divided them up according to whether the woman was ovulating or not, and froze them. In the second experiment, the scientists added an extra variable, which was a fresh t-shirt that had never been worn. T-shirts in hand, the scientists asked dozens of men to stick their noses into the bags. As the men sniffed the shirts, scientists sampled the patient's saliva, which was used to measure testosterone. Men who smelled the shirts of ovulating women in the first experiment had, on average, testosterone levels that were 37% higher than men who smelled the t-shirt of non-ovulating women. Now, obviously, this is a pretty controlled laboratory experiment, and men don't generally go around sniffing women's t-shirts that have been frozen in plastic bags, so it can be pretty hard to predict how these results apply to everyday life. However, the odor coming from a woman will be stronger than it is from a t-shirt in a bag, so it could actually really modify our behavior. Another interesting point um, is I heard if women take the the contraceptive pill, that actually um, makes them more attracted to uh, males with the similar genetic makeup. So they're more they're, it changes their pheromones that the male is is smelling, and this has a lot of implications. Um, when they take, get off the pill to get pregnant, they're either not going to be a, that attracted to the person that they were with. Um, or there's less genetic variation when they're trying to have kids, which could um, lead to more genetic problems in a child or maybe not even be able to conceive. Right, and the, the pill prevents women from ovulating. Mm. That's how it works, so it would alter the pheromones, which is how it ties into the st- study earlier. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, might be, um, it might go in two ways. It might be that the women who are on the pill are attracted to different men and also because their pheromones have been altered they attract a different type of man. Yeah. So that's but interesting. Yeah, it's one downfall of taking the pill. But it's such a small downfall. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Oh baby my. Oh baby my. Oh baby my. Oh baby my. I get so lonely when I dream about you. 
about you, life would be so fair. If you were there, we two could hug and kiss it, never tire. I'm on fire, you are my one desire. I get so lonely when I dream about you. Why can't you be there? Tossing and turning in my slumber. Oh, baby, boy. holding you, it seems. Oh, baby, I give you kisses with a number, but only in my dreams. Oh, baby, my. I get so lonely when I dream about you. Can't do without you. That's why I dream about you. If I could only put my arms about you, life would be so fair. Tossing and turning in my slumber, holding you is me. Oh baby, I give you kisses with that number, but only in my dreams. Oh baby, I get so lonely when I dream about you. The next news item is um, about divorce risk and terminal illness. They found that divorce risk is higher when the wife gets sick when compared to when the husband gets sick. So Dr. Mark Chamberlain, a Seattle oncologist, was treating brain cancer patients when he noticed a strange pattern. His male patients were typically receiving much-needed support from their wives. But on the other hand, a number of his female patients were going at it alone, ending up separated or divorced after receiving the brain tumor diagnosis. To find out if these observations were based on fact, he embarked on a study with other scientists at the University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Institute and collected data on 515 patients who received diagnoses of brain tumors or multiple sclerosis from 2001 to 2006. The results were surprising. Women in the study who were told they had a serious illness were seven times as likely to become separated or divorced as men with similar health diagnoses. Overall, about 12% of the patients in the study ended up separated or divorced, which is actually a rate that's pretty similar to the rate found in the general American population during the same time period. However, when you break it down in, se in gender differences, the differences really become clear. When the man became ill, only 3% experienced the end of a marriage. But among women, about 21% ended up separated or divorced. Among the couples who split up, divorce occurred, on average, about six months after the diagnosis, but obviously the timing varied. It's not known whether the illness prompted the breakup or whether the couples in the study who divorced were already experienced, experiencing marital problems before the diagnosis. However, they did find that if the couples are happy before the diagnosis, it appears that the men are more likely to jump ship. And if the couples were already troubled before a partner becomes ill, the findings suggest that women in unhappy marriages are less likely to proceed to divorce, so they tend to stick around. Additional study is needed to understand why women appear more vulnerable to spousal abandonment after a diagnosis of serious illness. The study did find that couples who had been married for longer were less likely to break up after a cancer diagnosis.
Results coming from the Nicaraguan abortion laws shows that banning abortions does not actually decrease the rate of abortions, it just increases the rate of mother death. Amnesty International launched a campaign to repel a 2006 Nicaraguan law that bans abortion procedures in all circumstances, including rape, incest, or danger to the woman's life. The group said that the law is a violation of human rights and that it has increased maternal deaths. According to a new Amnesty International report, the law puts Nicaragua among the 3% of nations that do not allow abortions under any circumstances. Statistics from... Uh, the Nicaraguan Health Ministry showed that 33% of women and girls died from pregnancy-related complications in the first 19 weeks after the law was instigated, and 20 died in the same period before. Um, a new study con- just concluded that parents' genders have little impact on children, which suggests that same-sex couples are as effective at raising children as heterosexual couples. Now, this raises a lot of issues um, because... In Australia, heterosexual 
um, couples are allowed to adopt, whereas same-sex couples are not. Um, now, this study said that on average, children succeed most when raised by two parents rather than one. So two parents is better. Um, however, the, the genders make little difference in terms of the child's development. Now, this was the study was published in a journal of marriage and family, and it challenges the widely held notion that children need both a mother and a father in their household in order to th- uh, thrive. So they're, what they're saying is there's no best household structure. And they also found that the children of lesbian co-parents may even have fewer behavioural problems and higher self-esteem, which is something that we, we should be considering here with adoption laws. I think another thing they were stressing is um, not to be too tough on on the dads in the family. um, When they looked at um, different child-rearing situations, they did find that having two parents, regardless of gender, Mm. but still two parents was preferable to having one. So in addition, single mother households correlate to lower child delinquency rates, greater parental control and higher educational performance than single father families. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Victoria Bond talks about the advantages of transsexuality in clownfish. So in honour of International Women's Day, I wanted to discuss about a very interesting scientific biological factoid, which happens to happen a lot in animals living in coral reefs. And it's something called protrandy, which is when animals shift their sex from male to female. So when does this happen exactly? Well, Finding Nemo could have actually ended up being quite a racy little Disney movie. It tends to happen when the dominant female in a clownfish group, for example, passes away. So in Finding Nemo, if you have seen the movie, and this might be a bit of a spoiler, it starts off with Nemo's mom tragically getting killed and Nemo's father finding the the lone little clownfish egg and rearing him as a mother would. Actually, as it turns out, in real life, his dad would have turned into his mom and Nemo would have grown up as a young, less dominant male and become the partner. Very Oedipus-esque. So what they found in a study which was published in Nature was that clownfish in Papua New Guinea tend to live as mom and dad pairs, defending an anemone home. A couple of younger clownfish are allowed to subsist, but generally it tends to be not more than four clownfish living in one anemone, just because of the, the food. There's just not that much plankton going around. And there's a very, very strict hierarchy to these clownfish. So the, the female is dominant, and then her partner, the male, is second in line. And then you have the, the lower clownfish, which, if they stay small enough and eat little enough, don't get kicked out. What happens is if the dominant female passes away, the next in line, the male, grows in size 20%, 
generally they tend to be um, increments of 80%. So the female, then the next male is 80% smaller, and then 80% and so on. And it's extremely fixed, which is a very interesting thing to, to have scientists study. So the, the dominant m woman, or no, <laughs> the dominant female passes away. The male then has a growth spurt, becomes the female, and then his offspring goes to become a male, etc., etc., etc. Now, they wondered why this would happen, especially so frequently in coral reefs. What they found is that it's actually a very, very difficult habitat to live in. So sea anemones are quite small, food resources are limited, and it's extremely dangerous and prohibitively dangerous for clownfish to move from one anemone to the other because they get preyed on pretty much immediately. And they're, they're very bright. You could see why that happens. So what happens instead is they tend to to coexist, they tend to be prisoners of the sea anemone in which they're raised, and um, they have to shift the, the social hierarchy every so often when the person passes away. So if you're a young clownfish, what you hope for is for the dominant female to pass away so that you're allowed to grow a little bit. Maybe one day you'll get to be dominant female too. I think it's interesting especially because I hadn't ever studied instances of protrandry. Um, when I studied evolutionary biology, we were always told that in terms of reproduction, males had it pretty sweet because um, sperm cost pretty much nothing to mm. produce. I mean, a single ejaculate could impregnate every single woman in the United States. That's pretty impressive. And then ladies only ovulate once a month, and obviously they have to carry the child nine months, not counting the 30, 40 odd years that, of dependency that follows that. So for me, <laughs> for me, learning about a sort of matriarchal system, biological system, was really interesting. And it's, it's, it's interesting to, to see the limiting or limit, limited environment in which that actually occurs. Where do the fish swim? Fish swim in the water naturally. Where do the fish swim? Fish swim in the river and the sea. Fish swim with no motors and no sails. How do the fish swim? Fish swim with the movement of their tails. Fish have tails to push with, and fish have fins to steer with. Fish don't really breathe the way we do. A fish gets its oxygen from the air dissolved in the water. It gulps in water and pushes it out past the gills. There, oxygen passes through thin walls of tiny blood vessels into the body. At the same time, waste carbon dioxide is picked up from the blood vessels in the gills 
and goes out with the water. How do the fish breathe? Fish breathe. On the move or standing still? How do the fish breathe? Fish breathe through the action of their gills. So recently I had the honour of meeting the Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and last year's Nobel Prize laureate Elizabeth Blackburn at Questacon. Now Professor Blackburn, um, if you don't know, won the Nobel Prize for medicine last year for the discovery of telomerase, which is an enzyme that helps protect cells from ageing. She was the first Australian-born woman to be awarded the Nobel Prize. Now I th- feel this is, this is a big deal for not only Australia but women um in or going into a science career. Now, I felt that she was a good role model for the students that were there. They were screaming out her name and waving frantically, frantically to get her attention, which I thought was really amazing, and I hope all, all scientists get should have that as well. Um, but you might be wondering what made her research so good to get the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Now, she was one of the um, scientists, the three scientists, who solved a major problem in biology, how the chromosomes can be copied in a complete way during cell divisions and how they are protected against degradation. The answer can be found in the end of chromosomes, the telomeres, and in the enzyme that forms them, telomerase. This not only has a potential to help cancer patients, but some genetic diseases. Now, for those listeners that aren't biochemists, Imagine the telomerase is the plastic bit on the end of a shoelace to stop it fraying. Now imagine your shoelace is a chromosome, which is a big strand of DNA. Then the telomere at the end of the chromosome acts as a way of protecting the important DNA in the middle. So if the telomeres are shortened, cells age. Conversely, if telomerase activity is high, telomere length is maintained. So you can see why this research has had major impact within the scientific and outside community. Many scientists speculated that telomere shortening could be the reason for ageing, not only in the individual cells, but also in the organism as a whole. This, of course, excited many that want to put off this ageing process, including myself. But the ageing process has turned out to be a bit more complex and it is thought to depend on more factors than the Mia telomere. Now, research is still going on um, right about that. Now, cancer cells have the ability to divide infinitely and yet preserve their telomeres. Professor Backburn and colleagues' research found that cancer cells often have increased telomerase activity. It was therefore proposed that cancer might be treated by eradicating telomerase. So this is really interesting, and there's several studies which are currently underway in this area. Now, also, some inherited diseases are known to be caused by telomerase defects. So this research will also benefit them. In conclusion, the discoveries by Blackburn and colleagues have added a new dimension to our understanding of the cell, shed light on disease mechanisms, and stimulated the development of potential new therapies. And in my belief, as a woman in science is a mentor for a generation of other young female scientists. There's some really interesting bits about cancer. I mean, that's one of the the things that defines it is that Mm. the cells are immortal. Mm. So they they actually, I think, um, studied cancer cells to discover why they they didn't seem to age because normally what happens is... They um, did, yeah. 
Yeah, when you, when you plate cells, uh, normal cells, they will divide 20, 30 times, and then they'll just die. They'll senesce. Um, but when you take cancer cells, they just will keep going forever. And I've actually worked with cancer cells that have been replicating since the 1940s, which is just fascinating wow. and not all that useful to anti-aging unless you want to be a big cancer. <laughs> exactly. But it, this research on cancer, like similar to um, the study research that you did, it's really important because it shows, well, why can't we get rid of cancer? And if it's a telomerase, maybe getting rid of getting rid of that to um, well, stop the cancer, which would be fascinating. Uh, yeah, I'd heard about um, some experiments postulating that maybe we could in, uh, inject or, or um, combine the telomerase gene into a virus and then infect cancer patients with the virus yeah. so that their cancer cells would begin expressing telomerase and would the cancers would just die eventually. Yeah, but or of stop course, and might progress further. Yeah, but un- unfortunately, um, mutated telomerase is just one problem with cancer cells. They've got a whole range of other mutations that make them very deadly. Well, hopefully there'll be some research on that too. Hope so. Eradicate it. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Now, contributing to the program were Victoria Bond and Catherine Behag. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Kat. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific